I'd also like to welcome you all to the retreat. This is Stephen Smith on my left. I'm Joseph Goldstein. As you might have noticed, we weren't here last night. It's your first test of mindfulness. Now this is the 19th three-month retreat that we've done. And it's quite astounding to me. There's been a whole generation of Dharma practitioners sitting in this hall. And every year at this time, as people gather for this particular retreat, really feels like the gathering of the family of Sangha. It's a group of people coming together with a very strong commitment to the values of awakening, to the values of freedom. So all of you, either those of you coming for the first time or many of you have been here, for many three-month retreats, part of a whole lineage established in this very hall. Tonight I would like to talk briefly about a few things that will be of tremendous support, will help lay the foundation for the undertaking of a retreat of this depth retreat of this length. And they're particularly relevant during these days of transition. You know, when you're coming from a busy life outside, the busyness of your worldly activities, making this transition into a place of silence and stillness and quiet and non-distractedness. There's one teaching which is called the four reflections which turn the mind towards the Dharma. Sometimes called the four mind changings. And I think it's particularly appropriate just in that time when we're perhaps still carrying a little bit of our worldly busy energy and about to enter into something that's quite different, what kind of reflections actually help align us with the Dharma, which turn our mind away from the worldly activities? Tonight I'll speak about them briefly during the course of the retreat we'll be going in much more detail into each one of these. The first reflection, the first of the mind changings, is the reflection on the precious human birth. This is not something that we think about very often. What does precious human birth mean? In the Buddhist cosmology, which, as most of you probably know, is a tremendously vast system of understanding, which involves planes of existence and world systems and vast immensities of time, 
It's taught that taking human birth within this vastness is itself a very rare event. There's one classic example of this. The image used to describe how rare and precious it is. It said that for somebody who has taken rebirth in one of the lower realms to achieve human rebirth is somewhat analogous to a blind turtle living at the bottom of a vast ocean and every hundred years this blind turtle surfaces. At the same time, floating on the surface of the ocean is a yoke or a ring of wood. Now, we're not talking about a little pond. We're talking about a big ocean. Okay, someplace on that ocean is this little ring of wood. And somewhere on the bottom is this blind turtle. And once every hundred years, it surfaces. It's said that the likelihood of that turtle surfacing and having its head stick up through the ring of wood is greater than taking rebirth as a human being from one of the lower realms of existence. So we must have done something good <laughs> to be here. This is not to be undervalued. But even if we don't necessarily understand or believe or you know, have a connection with this cosmology of planes of existence and rebirth, we can think of the preciousness of our birth in other ways. Even among human beings, how many have the fortune, have the good fortune, to be in a situation where they can hear the Dharma? Very few. And among those, how many, even when there is an opportunity to hear the Dharma, have any interest? When we speak about awakening, when we speak about freedom, it's a very few for whom these words even resonate, have some meaning. And even among those who resonate with the Dhamma, who have an interest in practice, how many have the opportunity to practice? Extremely rare. So as you are here sitting, and you're about to begin this three-month course, reflecting on this, reflecting on the rarity, the preciousness, the value can become the source of tremendous joy and tremendous respect. It's not by accident that we are all here together. It's the fruit or the result of a vast amount of what in the Buddhist terminology is called parami or merit or past wholesome action. We all share in that, or this situation would not have occurred. So even as you go through 
you know, the days of the retreat and are assailed by all the doubts and self-judgments and judgments of others and all the things that come up in the mind. Reflecting on this first of the mind changings, this precious human birth, this precious and very rare slice of opportunity which brings us to practice, it engenders or can engender this tremendous respect for ourselves and respect for everyone else who is practicing. This is symbolized in a quite beautiful way in the story of the Buddha before his enlightenment. He was called the Bodhisattva and he was sitting under the Bodhi tree the night of his enlightenment. And he was sitting there and he was assailed by all the forces of Mara, of delusion, of ignorance, one of whom, one of which, was tremendous uh, self-doubt. Mara was questioning the right of the Buddha to be sitting there, to be practicing for enlightenment, questioning the Bodhisattva. What the Buddha did, as the story goes, it said that he just reached down and touched the earth with his hand to bear witness to his right to be there, to his right to be practicing, to his right to become awakened. We can do the same thing. You know, in all those moments when we're doubting our ability, doubting our worthiness, doubting whatever, we can touch the earth to bear witness to our right to be doing this. Because it's happening as the result of so many past efforts. This is all part of what it means, the precious human birth. Precious opportunity, which has been created out of our own past efforts, out of our own past merit, our own past paramis. When we understand the Dharma and understand the potential of this human birth, it's as if we are visiting a great wish-fulfilling island where every wish is capable of fulfillment. Why is that? Because when we understand the power of the mind, the power of awareness, We develop a very profound insight into how it is that things happen. We see that every happiness is possible for us. We're capable of creating the conditions for every happiness that there is. This is one of the endowments of this precious human birth. The second reflection which turns the mind to, towards the Dharma 
away from the worldly entanglements is the reflection on impermanence. Our challenge in this particular reflection is to somehow bring it from the level of our intellectual understanding, which is not hard to grasp. Everybody will acknowledge that things are changing, things are impermanent. But somehow we have to bring it from the level of our intellects and embody it. We need to reflect on it in such a way that it becomes a living wisdom for ourselves. It's precisely this reflection on the impermanence of all things that inspired the Bodhisattva in his quest for Buddhahood, in his quest for awakening, enlightenment. It said that at one point, as he was just beginning his search, the thought came to his mind, why should I, who am subject to change, also seek that which is subject to change? Why should we spend our lives continuously going after that which is also impermanent? Is there something more profound? Our practice of the Dharma is really about coming to a realization, a personal realization, of the absolute, of the unborn, of the undying. We can reflect on impermanence in many ways. We can reflect on it in terms of the end of birth being death. We've each taken this precious human birth with its endowments, its potential for awakening, for happiness, for enlightenment. And yet for each one of us, birth will inevitably and inexorably end in death. It was in one of the texts, it expressed it very graphically, and it's an image that, that really stuck in my mind. It said, life is only running out. <laughs> you know, from the moment of birth, it's only running out. Our life is only getting shorter and shorter and shorter. We need to know this really deeply because this knowledge, this wisdom, in a very powerful way, turns our mind toward the Dharma. It changes our understanding of what is value, what is of value, and what is of importance. We can reflect on impermanence in another way. The understanding that the end of any accumulation of all accumulation, of anything, is dispersion. 
We can spend so much energy in our lives trying to accumulate whatever it is that each one of us accumulates. And yet the end of it all is dispersion. And that is the nature of things. Nothing stays together. Nothing stays permanently. It's all in a process of change. So how much of our energy is into collecting, is into accumulating? And for what purpose? We can reflect on impermanence in terms of our relationships. In that the end of all meetings, whether for a short time or for a long time, is separation. You know, we hear this and in some way it's so obvious. This is not, this is not news to anybody. But when we really reflect on it, when we think about it, then it's as if we really explore in a very personal way the implications of this for our lives. What does it mean that the end of all meeting is separation? It's said that it's like figures mingling in a dream. Figures come together in a dream and then at the end of the dream, it's all gone. So it's not that we don't meet with others and it's not that we don't have relationships of varying levels of significance. We do. But is there attachment in this? And is this what we take to be the highest value, the highest meaning? So we reflect on impermanence and it's a tremendously powerful turning of the mind away from worldly understanding, conventional understanding, superficial understanding where we really are willing to see, to face, to open to something that is much vaster and much truer and in the end much more meaningful. Now a profound reflection on impermanence reorients us towards letting go rather than holding on. It reorients us towards freedom. Because it shows us in such an immediate way what is truly of value in our lives. What is of lasting value. So much of the discontent that arises in people's minds in our culture I think has to do with an unfulfilled search for meaning. We are all looking for a meaning in our lives. What is it really all about? But unfortunately, mostly people look for meaning in things that are themselves impermanent and changeable and can't in the end give it. The great gift of 
the practice of the Dharma, of the retreat, is this opportunity to touch something that is deeper. So that's the second of the reflections that turn the mind toward the Dharma. First is the precious human birth and understanding how rare, how very rare in this world of beings this opportunity to practice is. Reflecting on the impermanence on all levels. The third reflection that turns the mind towards the Dharma is the reflection on the law of karma. And very simply, and we'll be talking more about this, but very simply it means that all of our actions have consequences, all of our actions have results, and that our lives right now are the results of our past actions. That things are not happening chaotically or randomly or unlawfully. And the very great blessing of our human condition and of our interesting and understanding of the Dharma, it's perhaps the greatest blessing is that we can discriminate between wholesome and unwholesome actions. Given the fact that every action we do has consequences, either for our happiness or our suffering, the ability to discriminate between wholesome actions and unwholesome actions, the wisdom to see that becomes the source for us of tremendous happiness in our lives. We have the wisdom to understand and the freedom to choose. In all of the Buddhist traditions, in all of the different schools and lineages, there is this commonality of understanding. It's expressed in one verse in the Dhammapada which sums up all of the teachings. It says, avoid what is unwholesome, unskillful. Do what is good, purify the mind. This is the teaching of all the Buddhas. So to have the opportunity to really understand and to develop this mind of discriminating wisdom is really the foundation of enlightenment. And it's the source of every happiness for us. There's the precious human birth, the reflection on impermanence, the reflection on the law of karma of cause and effect. And the fourth reflection which turns the mind towards the Dharma, which inclines the mind towards the Dharma, away from 
more ordinary worldly entanglements is the reflection on the inherent defects of samsara. Now, samsara is a word in Pali and Sanskrit, Pali being the language of ancient India that the Buddha spoke. Samsara means cycle of perpetual wandering, and it refers to the cycle of birth and death and rebirth over and over again. The example used is that of a bee caught in a jar you know, that has the lid on top. And the bee is buzzing around, and it might buzz to the top of the jar, it might buzz to the bottom, but there's no way for it to escape. It may be in the higher realms or the lower realms, but it's still just circling around and around. We also cycle through these realms of existence. And again, you can either, and perhaps you have an experiential or intuitive sense of the reality of all these realms and planes of existence, or even without it, we can appreciate how this works, certainly in the course of the retreat, even in the course of a day. Now, how many realms do we cycle through, feeling wonderful and happy and exalted and full of love? And then we descend into realms of anger or fear or hatred or loneliness or boredom or whatever it is. And over and over again, we just keep cycling through. Where is the possibility for freedom in this? This is the great teaching of the Buddha. This is what the Dharma is about. How we can understand the nature of the mind, the nature of our experience in such a way that we actually step outside this cycle of samsara. What's particularly amusing from this perspective, you might have seen the various advertisements for samsara perfume, <laughs> which is quite common. You see them a lot in different magazines. And it's, it's funny because it's as if samsara has become the representation of the highest good. You know, if you buy this perfume, you will enjoy. <laughs> there is another possibility. <laughs> the power of a long retreat, and it's, it's really what makes this time so special. Now, it really is a rare event in people's lives. One of the things that gives its power is that it is enough time for us to see unmistakably the endless cycling of samsara. You know, day after day, and week after week, and over the three months, you will go through these different realms of experience so many times. 
And it's through the seeing of that, through the seeing of how the mind is cycling through, that we find both the wisdom and the energy and the insight to actually free ourselves from it. We see the endlessness of samsara. And so we stop grasping, we stop looking, we stop waiting for the next hit of enjoyment or excitement or whatever it is because we have cycled through it so many times. The development of a strong and sustained awareness and that's really what the whole retreat is about. It's just you've given yourselves the gift of time to be aware, to be awake in as sustained and continuous a way as possible. It illuminates, that awareness illuminates the nature of things. So reflecting on these four mind changings, how rare it is to have human birth, to have the opportunity, the interest, the circumstances to be able to practice, and the, the self-respect that comes from that, the respect for each other, reflecting on impermanence. on the law of karma, that each of our actions has consequences. And so the wisdom to choose our course of action is seen as so crucial. And reflecting on the inherent defects of samsara, that this endless cycling can never bring us lasting satisfaction. giving serious reflection to each one of these will actually change it's called the mind changing it changes the mind it redirects the mind it aligns the mind with the dharma with what is true But as many of you know, this task, although profoundly simple, is not easy. It's not an easy thing that we're undertaking. The patterns of our conditioning are so strong. You know, the patterns of judging and comparing and liking and disliking the patterns of being lost over and over again in the past and in the future. These are all patterns that we're very familiar with. They're strongly habituated in most of us. So it takes a very strong commitment. It takes a certain fire, a certain passion for awakening. in order to sustain the effort to be aware, to be mindful. 
There are some specific qualities which really sustain or help to nurture this commitment, the commitment to awake. One of them is the quality in the mind of interest. It's that quality of willingness in the mind to explore what it is that's actually going on. Sometimes, and this probably will happen in the course of the retreat, people get into a kind of struggle, or they're forcing, they're sort of gritting their teeth and trying to plow through something. There might be times when that's helpful, but for the most part, I don't think it really works very well. A much softer and yet more incisive way of working with our experience is cultivating that sense of interest. Okay, what is it that's happening? What is this experience about? It's that feeling in the mind that whatever happens, whatever arises, let me be with it, let me understand it, let me open to it. We had one teacher who we'll probably be mentioning quite a bit, Upandita Sayadaw. It was a very demanding and, and a warrior type uh, meditation master. He is so committed to awareness, to mindfulness, to awakening. For him, if you die while you're practicing, it is no problem at all. That the real issue is, are you aware? <laughs> Can you be aware in this process? If one dies in the course of it, fine. <laughs> There's no problem with that. He calls it dying in the saddle. <laughs> And what I like about that, or what inspires me about it, is just the sense that there is nothing outside the range. There is nothing that falls outside of our practice, even to that extreme. And so if we can keep this feeling of great interest, of great inquiry, this feeling of willingness to be with whatever it is that comes, that will be a tremendous strength for you. Because in the course of this retreat, you know, as we get held in the silence, in the depth, in the quiet, in the concentration, lots of things are going to come up. What is this about? What is the nature of this mind state? What is this feeling in the body? That quality of interest is what keeps us going forward. And we often speak of great effort in practice. And the Buddha talked of right effort as a major component of the Eightfold Path. But the other side of great effort is also a deep surrender. 
And I think it's important to keep these in balance so that effort does not become efforting, does not become struggling. It's really this quality of deep surrender to what is true. There was a time in the early years of my practice where at the beginning of each sitting, I would make this statement or it was like a statement or an affirmation in the mind. I surrender to the Dharma. Whatever happens in this sitting, I surrender to the Dharma. I surrender to what is true. And it set the tone, it set that attitude in the mind of acceptance, of willingness, of interest. There will be many surprises. Sometimes it goes along so smoothly, and you think, I've got it now. You know, and you feel, well, this is just going to be a nice coast for the rest of the retreat. And the very next sitting, <laughs> you might be in unbearable pain or restlessness or agitation. And the reverse, you might be having a very difficult sitting and you think that you haven't understood anything at all and your practice is not going anyplace. And in the very next sitting, the mind drops into a place of clarity and understanding. So we need to keep this in mind. Keep this spirit of investigation, of openness. Underlying this attitude of openness or surrender or willingness, the softness of mind, is very much the feeling of metta, of loving kindness. Now, can we undertake this whole practice, sort of resting in the resting in the field of loving kindness towards ourselves, towards others? There's a poem which I may read later in the retreat of a 14th century samurai. There's one line in it which is particularly appropriate here, where he says, I make my mind my friend. And it's just such a nice, (laughs) such a nice thought. Can we make our minds our friend? Friends are willing to be with anything. They don't reject anything. They don't push anything outside. Now, as you're here for the three months or for however long, as you go through all the different cycles of experience, can you make your mind your friend? Whatever it is to have that feeling of metta, of loving kindness, of care, this is a tremendous support. There's another support for the commitment that's needed to awaken, to really emerge from delusion, to emerge from ignorance. 
And this comes from the spirit of renunciation. That is, all the things we do to simplify our lives. Now for this time, for these three months, and for many times during the year, this place becomes a great meditation monastery. It's a great practice monastery. You know, and in the many monasteries all over the world where people are on this quest, who are really genuinely and authentically practicing the Dharma in whatever form, one of the things that makes monasteries places of power is the power of renunciation. The power that comes when people are willing to let go, to give up. There's tremendous strength in that. But what is it that is renounced in your time here? One very obvious thing is the renunciation of family and friends. And we come here and even if you come with friends or people you know, starting tomorrow night, a bell rings and we enter this whole new land, this realm of silence, of stillness, of solitude. So there's a profound renunciation there. It's the most wonderful gift. Because out of this solitude, out of this stillness, out of this simplicity, comes tremendous clarity of vision. There's the renunciation of pleasure as the guiding principle for our actions. Now, we're no longer using that as the measure of whether we do something or not. Does it give us pleasure? That really becomes quite irrelevant. Because in that renunciation of pleasure as being the guiding principle for our choices, we no longer are limiting ourselves to a narrow band of experience and actually engendering fear of anything else. What we do here is renounce that, let go of it, and undertake the willingness, the interest, the commitment to being with the totality of our experience so that we really and truly and deeply can embrace pain as well as pleasure, where the mind is no longer grasping and no longer fearful. That is a great place of freedom. We also renounce, and in some ways this can be the most subtle, we renounce the fixed ideas we have of ourselves in the world, the self-images we might be holding, or even the very notion of who we are as a being. We let it all go. It's tremendously exciting. It's the exploration of this amazing mystery 
when we can let go of our preconceptions of who we are, who we think we are, and settle into the reality that presents itself moment after moment, there's a tremendous mystery unfolding. The mystery of the mind, the mystery of being, the mystery of awareness. What is it all? It leads us to something that Krishnamurti so aptly named, he called it freedom from the known. You know, we, we are prisoners of what we know. Can we settle in? Can we surrender? Can we learn to trust the unknown and see what the unknown brings forth? Just a few reminders which if they come to mind during the course of the retreat may be helpful to you. And it's something I've mentioned. It's the understanding that it is quite natural to go through many swings of experience, many swings of mood. That's not a mistake and it's not a problem. It's just the natural unfolding. It's a natural display of our minds. You know, there's happiness, there's sadness, there's joy, there's elation, there's depression, there's interest, there's boredom, there's everything. If you can remember that this is just a natural unfolding of changing conditions, then the mind is much less reactive and becomes much less entangled. It's okay, let it all happen. We can rest in awareness of it all. One teacher, <coughs> he sort of cap encapsulated this understanding very succinctly. He said, the price of gold goes up and down, but the nature of gold remains the same. Now, as the price of gold goes up, does the gold change? No. But people get all excited because the price has gone up. The price goes down. Does the gold change? No. The nature of awareness, the essential nature of awareness remains the same. It's unaffected by whatever may be arising. Let the price of gold go up and down Rest in the strength of mindfulness. Rest in the strength of awareness. There's tremendous freedom in that. Let's, will be helpful if you can bring it to mind as you go through all the cycles and all the swings. Second thing that may be helpful is remembering that the purpose of meditation 
is not to think out whatever problems you may have come with or to think about the great novel that you wanted to write or think about the possibility of your next fantastic relationship. All of these thoughts will come and they will be very seductive. Oh, finally, it's nice and quiet. I have a chance to think about all this stuff. They are very seductive. You know, our mind gets fascinated and interested in the content of all our thoughts. But that's not what meditation is about, and it really keeps us on a more superficial level. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have these thoughts come. They will come. It's all a question of, are we choosing to go with them, choosing to follow them, choosing to get lost in them, or can we see them? Can we be aware of them and let them go? Just in this vein, it's the understanding that meditation, although it has therapeutic value, is not really psychotherapy. It goes beyond our personal stories, our personal conditioning. Meditation leads us to that place that is really common to us all. You know, our stories are all different, and our conditioning is all different. From the perspective of awareness, it doesn't matter. The great gift or blessing of the Dharma is that we can find and experience that place of freedom in the midst of any condition whatsoever. Whatever our particular conditioning is, we don't have to figure it out, we don't have to solve it. We can actually become free in the midst of it. One Burmese teacher we had, at the beginning of a retreat, he just had one a couple of words of advice. He said, work hard and have fun. And I think it's helpful to keep these two aspects of the practice in mind. Work hard because it is a precious opportunity. It's, it's a rare opportunity. And have fun. And in a very strange kind of way, which most people who have not practiced couldn't even begin to understand, it is fun. <laughs> I mean, just think, what else could you do that you would start at 5 or 4 or whenever it is you get up in the morning till 10, 11, 12 at night, all day long? and really try at least making the effort to practice in every moment. What else could you possibly do <laughs> that would sustain that kind of interest or commitment? You couldn't eat that much. <laughs> you know, and you wouldn't want to listen to music that much. But there is something of compelling interest about being awake.
which is why we all keep doing this. We all keep coming back. And so it's to appreciate that, even, as I say, in the midst of all the ups and downs and turmoils. Work hard and have fun. You know, we each kind of come to practice from our own particular perspectives and backgrounds. For me, the way I, the way I think of Dharma practice, to me it is the master game of life. When I think of all the different games you know, I could play in this life, this is the master game because it is about the nature of life itself. It is really discovering for ourselves, not theoretically and not what we hear or read in books, it is discovering with tremendous immediacy what is the nature of being alive? What is the nature of our mind? What is the nature of discontent and suffering? And how do we get so entangled in it? And what is the experience of genuine freedom, of genuine peace? Now we are on this tremendous journey of awakening. And it's it fills me with a great joy <laughs> that all of us come together to do this. At the beginning of every three-month retreat, it's such a powerful coming together. It feels to me, it's, it's just this coming together of family. You know, people committed to awakening. But it also feels like somehow, you know, the, the great Dharma protectors kind of settle in here and just create this energy, this cover of protection and safety for this endeavor. It's a very big and mysterious thing that we're undertaking. I'll just close with, uh, it was, I have a suggestion of the Dalai Lama. He, he, he put it very well. He suggested that we all rest our heads in the lap of the Buddha. nice place to rest. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.